Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. This is episode 142. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, another week of the coronavirus and uh, lots of news in the oil and gas market, man. So, uh, ready to get into it today. Yeah, yeah, good week. I was down at Nape last week, so I got to see a lot of good folks down there. Uh, people making fun of me that I'm still the co-host of this show, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's sensitive people. Josh won't give me equal status. He's not, uh, he doesn't work for the Center of Biological Diversity or whatever, so he's, he's you know, a Unitarian or whatever What he are is. your pronouns, Ryan? <laughs> co-host, apparently. Uh, <laughs> so, but it was good being down at NAEP, a lot of good stuff at NAEP. You know, I, I read some mixed reports on um, what people experienced at NAEP, but for me, you know, I, everyone I talked to was pretty upbeat, pretty excited. Um, I know Ben and I will be doing a kind of a NAEP recap here on our show this afternoon, but, you know, it didn't seem like it was the end of the world or anything like that, so uh, thanks to the folks for for having us down and uh yeah the coronavirus the oil and gas markets and yeah yeah we talked about the the price turnover josh we didn't know that the the coronavirus was going to break out but i did see a report i got to check it this morning that the modeling you know much we trust modeling on this show but the modeling for the um coronavirus was saying it's going to peak here pretty soon so i'll be curious to see how much longer uh that's in the headlines or if the models like every other model completely wrong yeah, it's uh, it's certainly interesting uh, to keep an eye out. You know, we've I've been looking at the coronavirus and seeing how it is affecting the oil and gas market. I think the, when this article came out, so February the fourth, uh, oil and gas was at forty nine sixty one. So I think it it went to a low. It's it's come back up a little bit since then, right? Yes. Yep, we're at f- Brent is at fifty three ninety five today. WTI fifty. So. Uh, it, it actually dropped below 50 there for a little yeah, while. Yeah, it was in the 49s uh, last Wednesday, I believe. Yeah, that ain't no good. Well, I saw uh, I saw some news. You know, uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, months ago mentioned a ban on fracking. Uh, Bernie's, Bernie Sanders came out and said something similar about uh, a fracking ban. And it looks like, I mean, my estimation, he's probably the, the front runner in the Democratic Party right now. Um, have they? Did we know who won Iowa yet? Are they still? <laughs> they still debating that. I heard Pete won it, but I don't know. And I heard. Well, no, I know Pete said he won it, and then they said he didn't win it. And I saw Bernie claim victory. Um, okay. Pete has thirteen delegates. Bernie has twelve. So they're at twenty six point one and twenty six point two percent. Wow. So they're neck and neck. In New Hampshire's tomorrow or tonight? Tomorrow, isn't it? Mm, I am not. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay. Tomorrow. So well, t- Tuesday, because they'll be listening to this tomorrow. So yeah, yep. Tuesday. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And Biden was in actually fourth place. So um, I don't know what uh, what uh, uh, Pete uh, whatever. Buttigieg. <laughs> I don't know what his stance on fracking is, but I know the the second two, Bernie and Elizabeth, they're both uh, for a ban on fracking. So something to keep an eye on. I think you know that's. Yeah, I heard someone the other day saying that they didn't. Uh, expect a lot of change in the markets regardless of who the Democratic nominee were. And I found that interesting because if you have Sanders or Warren coming out, um, 
and they keep with the same rhetoric that they've had in the primary season. It's hard to imagine that the markets wouldn't be concerned, at least the oil and gas markets wouldn't be concerned, because um, if they get into a general primary with Trump and, and say those things, then I can't imagine how people wouldn't be concerned um, about the impact of that. And it would actually probably, if you think about it, it would actually help prices, maybe, because the, 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 the fear of the shortage, because they'd yeah. ban it. So actually, hold on. Let's, let's work this through here. <laughs> maybe we want to. Maybe we want to feel the burn in the primary season. Yeah. <laughs> it would be get interesting. The, get the prices up. It would be interesting to hear a uh, a, a debate between your your market optimist and Speakner. Mm, Speakner on primaries. Yeah, we got to do our Speakner. Oh gosh, we got to do our Speakner profit doom update. We didn't do that. We have to work on that as well. So, um, but yeah. So I, yeah, I guess that is the, is the thing to do it. If Bernie debated Trump in a general primary, uh, general election debate. And said he's going to ban fracking, and he was polling close to Trump. That would probably help prices because it'd be a fear of a shortage, right? Mm. It's possible, yeah. Because the opposite would be true if he's like, "Yeah, we're going to, you know, we're gonna, if we're going to socialize drilling and we're going to pay for you know a thousand rigs to come online, prices would probably be going down because people would be afraid of the of the glut." So, hmm. okay, so burn. There we go. Um, you know, uh, there's your oil and gas yeah, pitch. There, there's your oil and gas pitch, and uh, for socialists like you and Nate, that's uh, probably why y'all are going to vote for for Bernie. That's not fair. I'm a full-on communist. He's <laughs> <laughs> the closest you got right now. We have an article from uh, Seeking Alpha. Chevron Corp Permian Basin is still growing. Uh, fourth quarter revenues and other income were 36.35 billion, down 14.2 percent compared to uh, same quarter a year ago. Um, but they were looking at production and uh, the amount of money being um, accumulated out there, and it's it, their their numbers are showing that the Permian is actually still still growing. So, um, so there was some articles that we saw. I think we mentioned one last week or the week before about uh, peak oil in the Permian that mm-hmm. is hit, and um, this article is indicating that we're not quite there yet. Yeah, yeah, there was a uh, some kerfuffle. I believe was the word I'm looking for uh, about Exxon and Chevron, and you know, and when where they're going to do stuff. And, and one thing to consider with the with this um, coronavirus is, and I know I haven't read this morning what Russia's said they're going to do, but you know, if OPEC does pull some barrels off the market, um, you know, at some point, you know, I don't think this is going to be pandemic level where everyone's going to die and stuff like that. So if that happens, obviously prices will. We'll go way down because we won't need oil anymore. But since that's not going to that, that's not going to happen, you know, if OPEC does pull back some market and some of these softer prices, if they're prolonged for let's say you know uh, March and April, um, you might see some companies that that kind of get into some rough rough shape. Some more barrels come off the market here in the United States. Um, it could be at a spot to where the second half of this year, the 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 the, um, the pendulum could swing a little bit more substantially than we originally thought because um, the first quarter, the first half deficits um, kind of are more more severe, more impactful than what we thought. And so I'm, not, I'm, I'm curious how it's going to go. I know we've talked to some folks, Josh, and uh, obviously this is a small sampling size, but there's also plenty of people who are like, yeah, we're going to be drilling and we're going to have a good year this year, and they're not really worried about the price, at, that, at least at this point. Hmm. Yeah, well um – I'm not, I want to stay optimistic. I, I think, I think uh, my hope is for the mid, you know, second, third quarter to to be fantastic this year. So, uh, starting to starting to kind of move my optimism down to the third quarter. So, 
We have another article, Ryan, before our guest comes on. Uh, Shell pioneer John Hess, that's from the New York Times, he says that U.S. fields are starting to plateau. So over the past decade, um, sale revolution turned the United States into the world's largest crude producer, and um, and they're showing that uh, the energy sector is only gaining 6% in a decade, uh, far less than 180% return for the broader stock market. So he's showing the overall energy industry um, is, is starting to plateau here in the United States. So Pioneer, I mean, they, they've... Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a deal where, you know, okay, well, depending on who you listen to, there's 10 to, we're getting 10 to 20% of the wool out of, all out of the ground, you know, so we talk about plateau, obviously, that, that wool's going to be tougher to get out, so that's consideration, but that's also, you know, listen, 30 years ago, they weren't getting this wool out of the ground, so 15, 20 years from now, will we'll, we'll, we'll be able to get the oil out, the, the remaining barrels out of the ground easier, I don't know, you would suspect we could at some point, obviously, higher prices would incentivize that, low prices don't incentivize that. Um, and so you get into these these things. It's like, well, okay, if the prices stay between forty five and fifty five, then yeah, the the permian stuff will probably um, look a lot different. But if the prices go up, then okay, then maybe you, you look at that and go, hmm. you know, it's sixty five. We can look at it and say, okay, well, it's sixty five. Maybe they're incentivized to try to get more barrels out um, for for more effective ways. At a hundred, they're not really incentivized again. So the pricing has a lot to do with this and. Um, we've heard this narrative before, though. It's kind of one of those things. It's like, uh, you know, when the Yankees, who I hate as a Red Sox fan, or, um, I, you know, Alabama's fine, so I'll over Alabama. But, you know, Yankees, Alabama, Duke basketball, Lakers, when all those teams are really good, I, or John Jones fought this weekend, I kind of get the mentality, until they lose, I just assume they're going to win, especially comes to big games. And that's kind of where I'm with Shell right now. You know, until, until and you know, obviously companies have lost money, but until we start to actually see – some of these projections. Okay, well, let's just kind of sit around and wait and go from there. Today we have uh, two guests uh, joining us on the show. The first is uh, Matthew Crawford, CEO at Dynamus Power. He's joining uh, joining him is Travis Simmering, VP of Sales and Marketing. Guys, great to have you on the show today. I've been looking forward to it. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, really appreciate you inviting us on. Looking forward to the discussion. Thanks, guys. Yeah, so real quick, give us the kind of 30-second high level of, you know, what you guys do, and that'll kind of lead us into why we wanted to have you on the show for the uh, for today. Sure, this is Matt. So when uh, when you and I first started talking about this, the reason I reached out to you guys, you were talking about the uh, on one of the earlier podcasts around some of the rolling brownouts that were happening in the, in the West Texas area, specifically in the Midland Odessa area. And, you know, Dynamis Power Solutions, we use um, gas turbines to power all the electric fleets for Evolution Well Services, our sister company. And we're taking the Dynamis Power hypermobile solution into all different areas of the oil and gas industry, whether it be gas processing or midstream applications, operating a drill rig. Uh, so there's quite a few other applications within oil and gas that we're reaching out and, and branching into because of the success evolution our sister company has had. So yeah, I just thought it made sense to reach out and to have an open dialogue around what we're trying to do to utilize all this additional gas we see in West Texas. Yeah, so let's go back and let's talk about those brownouts because we did, we did cover that story. Let's kind of refresh everybody on what happened and uh, from your perspective, Maybe some things the industry could have done to, um, I don't know if prevent's the right word, because sometimes these problems you don't realize, uh, you know, by the time you can realize you could prevent it, it's too late. But moving forward, some ways that we can look at uh, from industry help uh, preventing some of those things. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's over, I mean, depends upon what report you read. There's about, you know, 500 million scuff a day being flared uh, in West Texas in the Permian Basin currently. And, you know, that's a significant amount of gas that could be used to power um, almost, I mean, literally anything. Is the, the challenge we have is around the collection of the gas, being able to put it into a, uh, a pipeline or something that's actually making it usable. Uh, but once we get into a collection point and able to run off of field gas, which 100% of our evolution fleets are running off of field gas today, so we're able to to generate 35 up to 35 megas of power um, with one single unit that can be rigged up pretty quickly. So, you know, again, I think that's where we could probably do a little bit better job, a little bit better stewards of the uh, hydrocarbons coming out of the ground to be able to basically generate almost free power when it comes to the fuel cost side. Yeah, so one of the things, let's get into that. You said fuel costs. One of the things I've heard about this technology, um, some of the folks that are kind of against it said, well, you know, when you look at using natural gas, natural gas prices are cheap right now. Uh, diesel prices, they're not high, but they're, uh, they're, they're more expensive. But, you know, if the natural gas prices, they go up marginally, the diesel price kind of stays where it is, uh, you might get a spot to where you, you don't need the natural gas, or the natural gas is actually a deficit, and you've transitioned um, over to these, these EFRAC type men, uh, mentality and um, – it's not as cost effective in that market. What would you say to maybe someone who's concerned about that? Yeah, so this is Travis. I mean, the the difference between um, fueling off natural gas and diesel is, you know, typical rule of thumb is about 10 to 1 cost differential. So we're talking about a pretty significant increase in the cost of natural gas that would kind of offset uh, that sinking, right? So, I mean, we're at whatever you want to call it depending on how your accounting principles have you assign a cost of gas somewhere in the $2 range or, or less than a dollar if you're looking at Waha. So even doubling or tripling that really doesn't offset the cost of diesel. Okay, so you would say that the the change would have to be so significant that in the current market it's, it's, it's almost hard to even imagine us getting there um, because it's just, it's just the order of magnitude is just so large. Yeah, I mean, that's really what I was getting at. So if you look at, you know, long gas prices, it looks like we're going to be in this uh, state for a while, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, imagining $10 gas um, is pretty kind of a stretch, right? So um, natural gas as a fuel source needs to be a pretty safe putt. Yeah, and the reality is that if, if natural gas goes up that much, more than likely you're seeing a price increase in oil, which then thereby you see a price increase down the road with diesel. And what, one of the thought processes, too, you know, if you just think about the – even from a, putting costs aside for a second, obviously economics are always going to be the driving decision maker. But if you think about taking the, the oil out of the ground, trucking it to a refinery, turning it into some form of diesel, then trucking it back into the Permian, when all the while you could just be using the natural gas that's already there with a, with with, uh, with mobile units, you know, the, the overall carbon footprint of a diesel molecule is pretty high, too. So in addition to the cost, you also have the environmental aspects of it to saying, hey, listen, there's a, there's a simpler way to do this. Take some infrastructure investments in some cases to be able to get enough of the uh, gas collected in one location. So I'm not denying that, but there's a better way to do it than just continuing to pull diesel back into the West Texas area. You know, when we talked offline back, I guess it was before the, uh, before the polar plunge, um, you know, you talked about the trucking aspect. That's one thing that kind of gets lost in this, and I wasn't even thinking about it in those terms. Josh and I have talked on the show multiple times about the impact 
that the, that the roads are uh, that the trucks are having on the roads out in West Texas or the Eagleford or, or wherever. And part of that is they're carrying around things like diesel fuel. Obviously, they're carrying around equipment and a lot of other things. Um, and then we've also talked about the the tragic deaths that are on the roads out there. Um, and so, listen, we're not looking to get rid of people's jobs. That's not what we're we're. We're not advocating for that, but we are free market guys, and if a free market solution is better, then we need to have that discussion. And part of what you guys are saying is you can eliminate some trucks, which, A, will bring down the wrecks and fatalities, B, will lower insurance costs, C, will be good for the taxpayer because the the roads will not be – you know the wear and tear on the roads is, is reduced. I don't know if you all know how much it would be reduced by, but it would, would be reduced. And those are things that when you kind of – it's not maybe the direct thing that everyone thinks about, but that actually impacts a lot of people and needs to be brought up when you talk about uh, switching away from diesel to using the gas. No, I, I think you're, you're dead on there because when, when we actually use evolution as a good test study – so when you think about the logistics of a frack pad, when you got the sand trucks coming in and out, you got you have the diesel fueling trucks that are coming in and out. It's like, you know, it's like Grand Central Station uh, with those trucks coming in and out of the roads constantly. Just by eliminating any of the diesel trucks that come in, just logistics-wise, uh, the improvements that we've been able to see on the evolution side of the house with pressure pumping, I think it's a good test case to all those trucks eliminated from that process. You take that to a grander scale and say, hey, we're going to significantly reduce the number of diesel trucks coming in and out of the West Texas Permian area. That's, that's a huge improvement. You know, I, I was with, uh, with Baker Hughes prior to joining Dynamis, and we were very uh, tough on folks when it came to driver safety. Uh, the stats that we had shared was that there's a, there's a death in the Permian area related to vehicular um, accidents every 27 hours. I don't know if that data is still accurate, but that was something that really drove home with us to try to eliminate the number of people that are on the roads or at least bring it down to the point where you're increasing the safety factor by quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, safety, insurance costs, and, um, you know, the insurance costs, obviously, for some for some companies, is going to vary. But but the fatality rate, not to make light of fatalities, but obviously the fatality rate um, for drivers, uh, for, for companies that have trucks, you know, their insurance costs for fatalities. So not only do you save lives, you, you save monies. And then, again, back to the taxpayers with the roads who are, you know, they're paying the, the, their, their taxes to repair the roads every so often. These big trucks come out there. So there's a lot of impacts there that I think um, that need to be considered. And I'm not saying it's, it's the case to switch or not to switch. I'm not really advocating either way. But when we, we talked, that was one of the things I really hadn't thought about. And I thought, you know, that's something that needs to be, to be brought up. Um, let's talk about, you know, you, you said, okay, hey, you're going to save money. You know, the, you're going to take some trucks off the road. You're going to reduce your carbon footprint, this, that, and the other. Um, what about maintenance? Um, one of the things that, you know, if you're hearing this and you're going, okay, kind of, you know, we kind of have our maintenance crews. We kind of know how to, you know, maintenance works. We know where the parts are. We know all this stuff. Switch into this, you know, you know how are we going to repair this stuff? You know, where are the parts coming from? Uh, for folks, you know, how does that work? Because to me, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a mechanical guy at all. But, you know, I, I can, once I kind of learn how to do something, I'd be kind of scared to switch just because if it breaks, how do I fix it? Yeah, so this is Travis. I think um, the easiest way to handle that is typically when we um, explain to somebody switching to a gas turbine, it, it, it does feel a little uncomfortable. They're used to working on their diesel, and the best thing we can tell them is, look, just don't touch that gas turbine, right? So there are folks that are trained to work on the gas turbine. We have, you know, 30-plus folks out in the field that work on our gas turbines as well as operator gas turbines. And the reality is the maintenance required for gas it's significantly a diesel machine. So you just kind of get that kind of in your mind. 
you'll have to do significant maintenance for about three, sometimes five years. In the pressure pumping world, it's even further than that because it's based on the number of run hours. And so once folks get comfortable with that and they see that their gas turbine kind of just runs and um, doesn't have any issues, um, you see them getting a little more comfortable with the fact that, hey, that machine over there is, is operated by, you know, professionals that know how to do that, right? And there's a lot of these companies out in the Permian now that are, are doing O&M on, on gas turbines because it's becoming, you know, a lot more of a um, hot commodity, I guess. Yeah, to give you guys an idea, this, this is Matt. When it comes to a, a gas turbine, minor and major overhauls is what we refer to them as. You don't have to do anything major with that gas turbine for the first 25,000 hours of runtime. To give you an idea, in the pressure pumping world, you're probably running at about 4,000 to 5,000 hours per year ballpark. So you've got quite a few years before you've got to do any type of really major maintenance on that, which is much different to, to your point earlier. It's much different. People are used to working on diesels all the time because they require kind of routine, regular maintenance. And it's just a different technology requiring a different type of maintenance. And really, it's the, the intervals between the maintenance are quite a bit further out in comparison between the two technologies. Yeah, and so on that, let's talk about... Um you know, I know what you're saying is, hey, we don't, you know, we don't need to repair as often. Um, but is there enough mechanics out there to repair the machines that will be in the field? Um, so could you run to a spot where you've got a plethora of diesel mechanics per se, where folks who have been trained on working on these diesel machines? Um, but is there enough to um, to handle uh, moving to gas turbines? Is there enough mechanics out there for 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 those tra- for that kind of that a large scale transition? No, definitely. It's, it's, it's a different level of skill set. And I would say currently we, we don't see that as a major bottleneck to be able to meet the needs of, of, of our fleets and all the units that we currently have that are out. So, no, I mean, it, it certainly is a different level of talent, a different skill set. However, good, the good thing is that power plants, I would say it's probably pulling from other industries, which is interesting to be to be in the midst of that right now. But at the end of the day, a gas turbine rotates and it doesn't know if it's turning a generator that powers a frack fleet or, or a, a stream asset or, uh, you know, a, a city generator. You know, it, it just doesn't, it's the same. Right. And so I would say to that is that, you know, uh, A, it's, it's, it's a potential concern. But two, we talk about, you know, just 15 minutes ago, we're saying, hey, um, if you made the switch, you would have truckers who would potentially be out of jobs. Obviously, there'd be impact. And so one of the things that we, we sometimes when you, you look at new technology, people are afraid of, uh, the jobs you might lose, but here would be something if you are a mechanic or you're mechanically inclined, you go, you know what, uh, if I think that this this is the way of the future, this would be a good time to now start getting your apprenticeship, going to school, whatever the, you know, whatever it is to, to get that, because if you, you guys are saying, hey, you know what, it's just kind of tight right now in this market, um, and the market does sh- uh, shift this way, now would be a good time to learn how to work on these machines. No, I, I couldn't have said it better. I think this is a good time to start looking into that new technology as we're coming to that space. And and I would say, you know, certainly people could look at switching technology as a threat to jobs. I think there are there are bigger threats to jobs when you have major politicians out there saying they're going to do things like the things that are going. If we can show that, hey, we're we're being better stewards of the molecules that are coming out of the ground. To give you an idea, our larger units will consume about 6 million scuff per day load. So that's 6 million scuff per day that we could be putting into a some type of uh, electricity generating production for whatever application that would otherwise potentially be flared. 
So while while I completely appreciate people wanting to make sure that hey we're we're not uh, necessarily losing jobs, but we're also needing to ensure that we've kind of the industry so that we're being as efficient as possible with what we've been given. Okay. Yep. Yeah, final thing. Um Give me you guys. Uh, we kind of talked about maybe maybe some potential drawbacks, but you guys know. Um, obviously, we talked about some benefits, but what would be some other drawbacks? That maybe for, for folks that are listening and like, you know, okay, this sounds interesting. Um, there's obviously some pros. You got cheaper cost, better maintenance schedule. Um, you're lowering the, the the trucking potential deaths, um, better insurance rates, uh, less wear and tear on the roads. Obviously, you might have a, a mechanic issue where you don't have enough. But what might be something else that we didn't cover that you go, you know, what this is something that that that, that this part of the industry as we transition this way needs to make sure that we adopt, that we get done so that we can have a smoother transition if this is the wave of the future. Yeah. And I think it comes back to the, uh, the investment in the, in the infrastructure somewhat, right? So if we're really going to make a big switch away from a liquid fuel base over to natural gas and use what's already, um, very, um, there's a lot of it in, in the in the area. If we're gonna if we're gonna switch that, there needs to be investment in collection and in pipelines and some processing. Right, like I can't just take uh, gas directly that would have been flared and run it through my unit. There needs to be some level of processing that goes on to make that fuel clean enough, takes the heavies out, um, gets to the right pressure. So th- there, there's some infrastructure requirements that need to be there, but I would argue that if we're going to put electricity into different places, uh, that's all going to require infrastructure as well. So I think that's the biggest challenge. You know, I think the, the number one challenge you, you've already hit on is making people comfortable with the technology. Although gas turbines have been around in other industries for a very long time, it's obviously very new to some of the, our oil and gas customers. So we need to make them comfortable with it. The maintenance side of it, like we talked about, especially too. And then the infrastructure, once the infrastructure is there, it becomes much easier. that, that come free that requires some investment dollars from, uh, from EMP companies that are really behind it, which we're seeing at start, but, uh, but it, you know, it's, it's a slow start. Well, you know, one thing Josh and I have talked about, I think on the show, but at least offline for sure is that, you know, if you if you could have unlimited dollars, which I guess our federal government does because they just print it when they need it, but if you actually had unlimited dollars, you would um, and you were going to build out our infrastructure grid today, you would do it fundamentally different than the way it was done back when it was built out. And so, when you look at technology in the oil field, yeah. there, you know, we, when we started drilling the the Permian and that was booming. Um, okay, we did it a certain way, and if this technology is uh, you know, is the wave of the future? Okay, then we need to make that switch, and those switches are hard, but we had to have those conversations. And so, um, when you think about massive infrastructure, sometimes people are a little bit hesitant because it does change, takes a lot of time, a lot of planning, a lot of effort, and there's a lot of fear and trepidation. But also, um, sometimes it does take those massive, massive swings um, to actually get things to be more efficient, to work better. And so, this would be something that Josh and I know will be following. Um, it's been something that you guys have brought up, and some other folks have brought up as well. So, um, for the simpleton like myself, it was good to kind of get some of these questions answered and get a better understanding. And I'm sure we'll have some listeners who will, you know, have opinions on it one way or another. In the meantime, folks that are hearing this, they say, "I want to hear more about this. I want to meet you guys, maybe, or you know, or, or whatever." Um, where can people connect with you? I know y'all y'all weren't at NAPE last week. You're at another conference. So, if you have another conference you're going to be at, where you know, can they meet you at a conference? LinkedIn. Uh, why don't you put folks where they can uh, connect with you offline? Sure, yeah. So you can reach us at www.dynamisps.com and then also our LinkedIn page is Dynamis Power Solutions. You can reach out to Matt or myself, Travis, um, directly. Uh, we're pretty easily accessible 
what I did want to mention though, when you when you say infrastructure, large infrastructure, what we think is a, is a key in this power space is is mobility, and so taking the power to where the fuel source is. And so folks that are afraid of it, you know, that's why we want to educate them on how accessible the power can be versus these large infrastructure plays. But, you know, we'd love to talk to folks further about, you know, building out their power infrastructure and, and a larger power strategy. Yeah. And, and to be clear, I'm saying that, you know, if you're going to buy a new truck, it's not like you're saying, hey, we're, we're, we're deciding between the Ram 2500 and the Ford F-250. When you start thinking these grandiose type big pieces of machinery, long-term maintenance cycles, you start going, oh, it's just kind of scary because you're like, okay, this is a 15-year deal. What if it didn't work out? You know, how am I going to fit, you know, and, and do I do one? Do I do four? Do I got to build a pipeline? You, you start thinking and it, it could compound on you very quickly. And the only thing I'm trying to say is that, yes, that you guys are a little bit different, but also, um, you know, part of the infrastructure problems that we see here in the United States as far as either roads or electricity or whatever is because we have a system that was built before we have the technology we do today. So as we move forward, we want to try to make sure that we are keeping up going, okay, hey, you know what? Uh, we did it this way. It worked really good and that was great. But now we want to maybe transition to this and this might be one of those technologies that, that is, a, is a good catalyst for that kind of movement. Sure. Okay. Well, fellas, uh, thank you so much for coming on. We will link to the website and all of that in the show notes. And uh, it was good to have you on, and best of luck. And uh, as things develop, I'll get you on again in the future. Sounds good. Thank Sounds you, guys. Good. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Matthew Crawford and Travis Simmering for coming on the show today to talk about uh, natural gas turbines. Uh, fan- you know, fascinating stuff. Uh been been looking at it and thinking about it for a while so great to have them on with that ryan uh we'll hit the texas roundup uh, and run through a few stories or okay we can uh run through those real quick this will be a short episode for our friend we won't say his name he lives up in dallas but this one's for you sir yes sir i know you're talking about so uh First thing, oil and gas stock roundup, ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell report, Q4 earnings. I'm going to link that in the show notes if you want to check it out. South Cross Energy, Exix bankruptcy, moving headquarters to Houston. Good friend Sergio wrote that article. And he also wrote, ConocoPhillips ready for a major round of drilling in Eagleford Shale. So uh, definitely something to keep an eye on. Plains All-American oil pipeline volume gets boost from Cactus 2. Uh, that is a Heart Energy article. And Econor, Shell, buy out Schlumberger and Argentina's Vaca Morita Shell. <laughs> you didn't get a single word right in that sentence. I can guarantee it. Hey, that's too many, that's too many <laughs> French words, <laughs> man. That's Spanish, one. actually. That's Spanish. <laughs> hey, Vaca Morita means dead cow. <laughs> Vaca Morita. <laughs> you didn't get a single one right. I, I hope you did at least. It didn't sound right, which I can't speak English, much less Spanish. So, well, they they completed a three hundred fifty-five million dollar joint acquisition. A of bunch interest. of companies that I didn't pronounce right. Hope you go figure it out. They yeah. closed a big deal. Yeah, big deal. <laughs> Show notes. Exciting Click times it. in Argentina. <laughs> Matador Resources Company announces date of fourth quarter and full year twenty nineteen earnings release. Uh, let's see. I looked it up. February 25th, 2020. That's going to be their uh, fourth quarter release. So uh, management will also have a live conference call on Wednesday, the February 26th. And last but not least, nope, that is actually it. So the last one was just to mention the oil price, where it was at, just taking a look. We've already went over that. So with that, Ryan, I think that wraps us up. For <laughs> we need the some day. more Spanish stories. <laughs> uh-huh. We do. <laughs> 
All right, well, it's good to get back on the show. We'll keep it short today, as promised. We'll be back next week. And uh, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, 